Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. This is animator Angie Glocka, and you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, a show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's in the movie theater, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, musician and lifelong Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan. You can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossert, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, uh, you're you're back now a full week from your vacation in Walt Disney World. Yeah. And uh, we're up to your eyeballs at work. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely up to my eyeballs. It's like always the way it was right. Right before you leave, everything changes and people are changing course on certain things. And you just kind of look at it and go, okay, I'm going to knock out as much as this as possible before I go. And unlike in years past when the, cause my vacation comes around like clockwork every year, never ends, always going to be a fury of just stuff. And this year actually knocked it all out. I didn't have anything hanging over my head. Uh, for the holiday, which is great. So I was super happy and I literally maybe looked at my phone and my email maybe twice while I was there. And then that's good. Yeah. It's a record for me, Dave. You'd be proud. That's good. Yeah. yeah you'd be I, proud I, of me. I commend you for how that. About, how about you? How was your week? <laughs> yeah, it was a very busy week. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the throes of writing a new book Yeah, and, uh, I'm just uh, working away. Uh, I have to say though, I'm very excited about the month of November. You know why, Al John? Oh, do tell. Well, because here at the Skull Rock Podcast, it's Andreas Deja month. What? That's, that's right. Yeah, we're we're kicking off today a four-part interview with Andreas Deja, who is the legendary Disney animator. He's a Disney legend, but uh, I mean, you know him from his characters, Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. 
Jafar and Aladdin, Scar and Lion King, Lilo and Lilo and Stitch, and so on. Hercules, Hercules. Yeah, Hercules. (laughs) I mean, it just goes on and on. Wow. Uh, So I'm thrilled that we're going to have this four-part interview. So the next four weeks, it's all about Andreas Deja. So November 2022 is Andreas Deja month. I I can't believe it. What a generous soul and what a, uh, you know, I saw him get inducted um, to the D23 Legends Pantheon, if you will. And yeah. he was great, just a wonderful person. And it's just wonderful to actually meet him in person and yes. talk to him. And what a great, great talent and personality he is. So, so yeah, happy. he's yeah. he's fantastic. And uh, just been, uh, you know, I think uh, I think our listeners are going to just really enjoy the conversation. I think so, too. Well, I can't wait to delve into that as well as some news. But first of all, because we are talking about pulp culture here, what have you been watching this week, Dave? Well, you know, I went to the movies and I saw Black Adam in IMAX. Wow. And I was disappointed. Mm. You know, I, I again, you know, the DC universe has just been hit and miss. Uh, more, more misses than hits, I have to say. And Black Adam, I went into this really wanting to love this movie because I I like Dwayne Johnson, you know, Uh, I think he's terrific. And there was little glimmers uh, of hope throughout the movie, but it just wasn't a great movie. It it just, you know, just was not a good movie. Oh, that's so disappointing. And, see, and by the yeah. way, my I, I have a gauge when I go to the movies. Okay. I generally go to the movies with my friend Rick, who is a uh, a film fan. Okay. And uh and he's a lawyer, right? Uh-huh. But he is a student of film. We always have these great conversations about movies. We go to see, you know, uh these special Turner uh classic movie screenings together and stuff like that. And and my gauge with Rick is if I look over to him uh, while the movie's playing and he's asleep, it's not a good movie. Oh, my. And and he fell asleep a few times during the screening of Black Adam. Unbelievable. So, yeah. so I, I have to give I have to give uh, Black Adam uh, a thumbs down. Oh, it, it was not a great movie. That's horrible. Absolutely. Sorry to say, well, you know, there were, there were some great moments in the movie and if people want to see it, wait until it comes on one of the streamers. Yeah. So I have a, a bunch of friends. I actually have that movie earmarked to watch over at the drive-in, you know, the season is going to wind down soon and wife and I are getting a sitter to go see Wakanda forever um, next week when it comes out. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, great. You know, let's see if we can go see black Adam around the same time. And now I just, I have no want or need to see it because yeah. of just my friends are so um split some people say now that's how a, a dc movie should be i'm like really like two-thirds of my comic book fans really dislike it really dislike it yeah i, I and you know it had a lot of potential uh it, it really did have a lot of potential but it just wasn't a good film uh, that's a shame all right well there you go there's dave's review yeah. on black adam so and, and then the uh, on the streamers, I I started watching uh, Shantaram Shantaram uh-huh. okay uh, on Apple Plus, uh, and that stars uh, Charlie Hoonan, uh, if, if you remember from um, what was that motorcycle uh, series, um, uh, uh, Sons of Anarchy. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, Charlie Hoonan stars in this. 
it's got a really great cast and uh it you know the 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 the, the synopsis is fugitive lynn ford who charlie hoonan that's his character looks to get lost in chaotic 1980s bombay alone in an unfamiliar city lynn struggles to avoid trouble but falls for an enigmatic uh, woman and must choose between freedom and love and the complications that come with it. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is on Apple plus uh, great production value. Uh, I'm enjoying it. I, I actually like it. It's based on a novel of the same name. Uh, and I know there's been some mixed uh, things with critics, but uh, it does it does get a 4.7 out of five wow. uh, as far as uh, ratings go. So I've been watching that. And then I watched a, uh, what I think is a limited series. They may actually come back with a second uh, a season of this, but it's called The Inside Man on Netflix. Uh, have you seen this at all? Uh, uh, I, I've seen I've seen the trailer for it. Yes. Yeah. So this stars Stanley Tucci, yes, who is a actor. prisoner on death row, uh, and it also stars David Tennant uh, as a vicar in England. And I have to tell you, this is a really interesting series and great actors in here, um, and uh, really well done. It, 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 there's a lot of twists and turns. Uh, Stanley Tucci is the inside man. Uh, he's a prisoner on death row. And uh, I'll just read the synopsis real quick. A prisoner on death row in the U.S. and a woman trapped in a cellar underneath an English vicarage cross paths in an unexpected way. Uh, really uh, very, very well done show. And, you know, Stanley Tucci is just one of today's great actors. I mean, oh. he's just really terrific. And Dave Tennant, uh, too. And I mean... David Tennant. Uh, there's another actor in here, Atkins Estemond. Yes. Who, who plays sort of uh, another death row prisoner. He's, he's the neighbor to Stanley Tucci on death row. Yeah. And he's absolutely fantastic, I have to tell you. Just really great. It so, looks like my uh, kind of show, Dave. I would highly recommend Inside Man on Netflix to anybody out there who's interested in looking for a new show to watch. Uh, I think it was eight episodes, but it was really, really well done. Uh, cool. And then I also uh, watched, uh, you know, they, they keep dropping um, uh, episodes of some of the other shows that I've been keeping up with. Uh, reboot on Hulu on Hulu is absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't had a chance to watch it, I think now there's six episodes or seven episodes that have dropped. Uh, you should absolutely check out reboot on Hulu. And that's really all I had a chance to watch uh, this, this past week. Love it. Um, but uh Good stuff, you know, some right quality on. programming. I love it. What so, have you been watching? Uh, Kristen and I have been checking out Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Ah, how was that? It's really good, Dave. I mean, so, this so is... Tell me what that's about. So it's an anthology series, and it has an intro by Guillermo del Toro talking about what you're going to see in today's episode. Very much like a Rod Serling intro, uh, intro for um, Twilight Zone. And then he actually highlights the director from this cabinet of curiosities and uh, what kind of stories they're going to tell. So each episode is a, is a very easy watch in my opinion. I mean, they're a little less than an hour long and it's just really well done. 
the way that it's shot now, I'm not a filmmaker like yourself, Dave, but this whole th- series has a very particular look and lighting and mood to it. Very similar to uh, a Gothic, I would say kind of like a Gothic horror novel, very Mary Shelley, the way it's shot kind of got that kind of patina look to it. Everything has this golden Brown hue. So when you look at it, it looks like an old painting. Wow. So it's just a, I feel like it's really cool. I've seen three episodes um, so far. There's an eight episode uh, series and it's just really well done. All kinds of great actors. You'll probably know uh, from it, like uh, F Murray Abraham, which I'm a big fan of uh, Peter Welger. Um, let's see, Sebastian Roach, Stephen Agee. Like there's a bunch of people that, uh, that know, uh, or DJ Qualls, a lot of just different actors uh, in these different stories. And I think it's really well done. So, um, so far yeah. so good. I'm digging it. Awesome. Yeah. And then let's see for Hulu, of course, you know, because I'm a fan of horror, we are watching American horror story, uh, New York city this year on Hulu. Um, you can check that out. It's, this year, it's um, kind of a retro um, 80s uh, throwback to a serial killer that's hunting down um, uh, hunting down gay men um, in, in, in New York City. And who is this person? You know, and the cops are like, what's going on here? Why, is it, why are these people being picked off? And it's just a very, very interesting and intriguing story so far. I'm digging it. Um, also, Handmaid's Tale. So I'm still watching Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> and going through that um and there was another series that um oh there was a movie i did see terrifier 2 okay see here's a, there's a yin and the yang there's you and then there's me and doing the horror stuff uh kind of finishing off our <laughs> halloween and terrifier 2 is gory it's about a killer clown and uh, on it's Halloween, it's always about the killer clown. It's always about it? the killer clown, you know, and it's just one of those things. Terrifier two, and it is gory and shocking, shockingly gory, uh, even more so than the second one. And if you're interested in watching it, it is in theaters, but uh, we do have an option for you to stream it, which is what I did, which is on Screenbox, yet another horror movie uh, service. So you can go ahead and get that for four ninety nine a month if you're interested in Screenbox. So. Um, those are just some of the films and, and things I've been streaming. Um, can't get enough of the horror, Dave. Sorry. <laughs> hey, hey, man, it's November. Get over it. Well, you know, you know start watching some happy holidays. Well, stuff. I did watch some happy holiday stuff. So <laughs> there is something that uh, I'll draw attention to, which is Disney Plus. Um, Disney Plus has been re- releasing over the past couple of years these shorts uh, for the holidays, our gift to you. And the last two episodes were dealing with um, a gift or something and it it surrounds a a Filipino families. I'm not really sure if the creators were Filipino or not, Uh um, but it was very interesting to see that. You'd hope they were, wouldn't you? Well, you would hope so. Um, To bring some authenticity to it. Absolutely. And I can tell you it was very (laughs) authentic. So if you look at the last two um, little Christmas specials that they had, um, they're very small um, shorts, but this one was great. It's called the gift. And it basically is about a little little girl who's in a um, a small family, uh, grandma, mom, dad, um, blended marriage. It seems like a Filipino mom, African American father, and the mom's expecting 
and she feels a little neglected around the holidays because um, mom's pregnant. And as things happen, she feels neglected and these things that she's kind of wanting her mom's attention, she doesn't realize that the greatest gift is coming is the gift of her uh, baby sister. So she gives birth on Christmas. She's not around for Christmas, but the next day she comes back home and the Mickey Mouse uh, plush that she was given when she was a baby, she looks at the baby in, in, the, in the, uh, the crib and hands her the baby, uh, the baby Mickey Mouse. And I thought that was a very heartwarming story. I look at these stories. There's no, absolutely no dialogue. And wow, that's awesome. It makes me tear up because once again, it's like the first few minutes of up. You can tell yeah. an entire story and have that emotional connection about the story without any dialogue with just wonderful animation. So I encourage people to go out there and check out um, the gift on Disney plus uh, it's probably 10 minutes long and it's time well spent. You know, it's it's coming full circle because, you know, those early classic Disney animated features uh, and even a lot of the shorts uh, have very little dialogue. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, look at Bambi. Yeah. There's not a lot of dialogue in Bambi, no. you know, no. and, uh, and, and it's great that they're doing this. It's brilliant. I love yeah, the Disney think, shorts. Think, They're so good. Yeah. And like the short that ran, and I, 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 the name escapes me right now, but the short that ran in front of Seoul, mm-hmm. um, where the couple was in the rain, and every time they hit the rain, they ended up reliving their younger years. It was an older couple, right? That was just very touching. And that's the kind of animation I love. I love that that story thread. It's just brilliant storytelling without dialogue. It's just so yeah, universal. I, I, and that's the way animation really should be. I mean, you know, a lot of the animated features today just are so dialogue heavy. It's crazy. That's right. You know, that's right. You, you don't need, you don't need the dialogue. No, between the time, yeah, between the, between the animation and the stories being told there and the music, by the way, which is I, so the supporting, the, what I call the supporting cast, the music is so good. Yeah. So uh, there you have it. So more great Disney stuff, I'm sure uh, coming up, uh, we'll talk about, but Let's go ahead and dive into Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. All right, Dave, Disney Plus subscribers get the first crack at new toys in an online test. All right, so Disney streamers can go to the company's main shopping site, scan a QR code when viewing shop this story section in program descriptions how interesting dave it's kind of like hey, yeah it's kind of like you know, uh, why not? yeah why not right it's a bob chapek the ceo said he wants to expand the company's connection with the most loyal fans offering video content and experiences tied to their interests um yeah those qr codes are just coming up roses i mean there's a lot of qr codes coming up actually in the She-Hulk series and a lot of the, the Marvel studios, you get free comics when those really stealthily hidden and sometimes not so hidden QR codes pop up, yeah. you scan them and then people are delighted with a free comic book or free comic books every episode. So I think this is part of that evolution of, of these uh, QR codes and there you have it. Now, awesome. Disney, yeah. Disney expects merchandise to be available for about seven days. Disney plus subscription, which includes access to the company's vast library of content starts at eight bucks a month. As we all know, pretty cool stuff. Another way to get you to buy stuff. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Now, Dave, uh, you and I haven't seen Witcher, but it is a highly popular series. And Henry Cavill, the star of Witcher, who also plays Superman, is not coming back after season three. And his replacement will be Mr. Liam Hemsworth taking up the mantle of White Wolf. And uh, that's very interesting. uh, Well, you know what it is, is because Henry Cavill is going back to be Superman. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he's apparently gonna be making some Superman movies. Well, I mean that's good in this new era. I think, I think they need somebody to lead it, and people really like Henry Cavill a lot. Yeah, you know yeah, he's a terrific Superman. Why not? Why not? Now, you sent me this, and I keep on thinking this is a joke. I keep it's thinking not. it is not a joke. The viral low-budget horror, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Blood and Honey! Getting theatrical <laughs> releases in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Mexico. It's a bloody take on the children's story following Pooh and Piglet on a murderous rampage through the 100-acre woods. It's been acquired by one of your favorite uh, companies, Fathom Events and Altitude. <laughs> Altitude. You know, um, just from just from the title, Al John, I am gonna go see this. Okay. But <laughs> honestly, I have to tell you, uh, this is you know, you sit there and go, Oh my gosh, how can they make a Winnie the Pooh blood and honey horror movie? You know, and uh the reason why this got made uh is because AA a. Milne's uh original book uh on Winnie the Pooh has entered public domain uh, as of January of this past year. Right. You know, January, 2022. Uh, it, it passed the 95 year mark since its publication and it's fallen into public domain. So anybody can take that book and do whatever they want with it. Uh, and uh, there's no repercussions, even though Winnie the Pooh as a property is so associated with Disney. That's so I'd be wild. curious. To, I'm curious to see what Disney's doing about this. You know, uh, yeah. So, so the Disney doesn't own the the catalog rights and and opted to extend it. I thought it, uh, it 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 doesn't make a difference because the original book now is in the public domain. Okay, so the book is one thing, but character uh, character. Well, the characters in the book can be interpreted however you want. Okay, you know, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So when I saw this initially, because uh, someone had shared this to me, maybe it was even you, Dave, and you you sent me this link or something, and I looked at it and go, "This is this is just craziness." I mean, it's like Pulp Fiction with Winnie the Pooh and, and Piglet. It's like, what's going on here? And uh, you realize, or uh, fear and loathing more, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, just insane. It, it is nuts. Wow. You know? So I'll be, I'm going to be curious to see what happens with uh, you know this this particular property. Well, you said so. it here. You said it right here for everyone to hear, Dave. Uh, you're going to see it in the theater, so I can't wait for the report. I will go see regarding it you know, that. I'm just curious to see what they're going to do with it. You know. Yeah. Well, curious. I, it's like a train wreck. You can't help but look at it. You know. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you can't look away. This is true. All right. So James Cameron has a plan. If Avatar: The Way of the Water bombs. Wow. This uh, is. I mean, honestly, a- when. when 
we, we talked about this before that before we started recording. I mean, honestly, what a headline. So he's already got a plan in place in case Avatar The Way of the Water bombs? Yes, according to comicbook.com, and this is via uh, Slash Film, Cameron revealed in an interview what the game plan will probably be if his film comes and goes with audiences. He says the market could be telling us we're done in three months, or we might be semi-done, meaning, okay, let's complete the story within movie three and not go on endlessly. If it's just not profitable, we're in a different world now than where we can, where I, when I wrote this stuff, it's even the one-two punch with the pandemic and streaming or conversely, maybe we'll remind people what's going to, what going to the theater is all about. This film definitely does that. The question is how many people give it mm now? How many people give it mm now, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, honestly, I have to tell you, uh, the fact that they re-released the first Avatar to theaters a month or so ago, and it hasn't really done well. Uh, it you made know, twenty-five I, million, I they, Dave. Yeah, I think they re-released it in uh, September. Yeah, it might have been. You yeah. Know? yeah, and it really it has gotten no traction. There isn't an audience rushing out to want to see Avatar again on the big screen. Yeah. Whereas, and that's a movie that's 13 years old, whereas I think they re-released Spider-Man with 12 minutes of bonus footage, and it made more, way more than that. Yeah, of <laughs> you course. Know? You know, I mean, you know? It, 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 it did terrific. But, uh, you know, this is, it's going to be interesting to see, frankly. Uh, I, uh, I've talked to people, and there doesn't seem to be much buzz or interest in going to see The Way of the Water. Yeah, I've, so, I've not heard any. I don't know. I, you know, I will go see it, and I'll probably go see it on an IMAX screen because I just really want to experience it on a big screen. But yeah. you know, it, it, I don't have high hopes for this one. Yeah, I mean, neither do I, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, uh, we regretfully announce um, a passing of Disney legend Alice Davis. The estate had mentioned that uh, she had passed away. The Disney legend on Thursday. And the family confirmed it. She was 93. Of course, at Walt Disney Imagineering, she was known as one of the original designing women, married to legend Mark Davis, and enjoyed a great career of her own. She uh, dressed up a lot of animatronic figures, such as those as It's a Small World and Pirates of the Caribbean, and so much more. Dave, you you knew um, Alice she, Davis. She, she was an absolutely lovely lady. That's all I can say about her. Uh, she was a huge, hugely involved. Uh, you know, I uh, for a while I was president of the Cal Arts Alumni Association, and you know, Alice uh, was a graduate of the Chouinard Art Institute, which was the predecessor to Cal Arts. And I have to tell you that uh, she was very much involved. She was she was one of our Chouinard alums that was on the Cal Arts Alumni Association. She was involved. She was engaged. She showed up to meetings. Um, you know, we we for a number of years we did a uh, art and wine gala that was a fundraiser for the arts community uh, and for Cal Arts. And she showed up every year. Uh, she donated some of Mark Davis's artwork uh, for the auctions. I mean. You know, just an incredible lady. I, I had the pleasure of talking with her quite a bit over the years and hearing stories about Walt Disney, about her husband, Mark, about, you know, Salvador Dali. Yeah. Uh, she was just a wealth of uh, sort of an oral history of that period. 
and couldn't have been a nicer person. She had a wicked sense of humor. She was very funny. Uh, and, uh, she's going to be missed, but boy, what a life she had, you know, 93. Yeah. She said, quote, working as an Imagineer was the best job I ever had because there were no class distractions. Everyone had a job to do. None of us had titles. We all went by first names. We all worked for the same thing, putting on the best show possible. We'd be at work and before we had to be, we'd stay as long as we had to. And that's just great. You know, when you can find joy in work it's not really work right so absolutely so you will be missed and once again it's uh, great that she's remembered disney legend alice davis 93 years unbelievable lovely lady she will absolutely be missed right on and another news singer aaron carter and hip-hop artist dies at the age a young age of 34 uh aaron carter died at uh, his california home according to the ap and originally reported uh, he was found at his home in Lancaster, uh, reportedly drowning in his own bathtub. And that's so sad. Um, of course, you know him uh, as being a music star as well. The younger brother of the Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter, rose to fame as a child star. He was in film shows and TV shows like Lizzie McGuire and Seventh Heaven. And unfortunately, he had battled a lot of demons in his life. And uh, as the reports come out, there is no um, report on why or how he had passed. Um, but once again, you know, he will be missed as well because he's just a young talent that has gone too soon. You know, this is just another another tragedy of these, um, you know, child stars. You know, I mean, he, he struck fame as a kid, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the, this, this is a story that repeats in Hollywood. Certainly, certainly does. And so I hope he rests in peace now. Uh, So as we move on, we are celebrating just a wonderful, another great Disney legend. So let's go ahead and get into part one of four amazing interviews with Andreas Deja. Enjoy. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have a fantastic guest. We've got animator Andreas Deja, uh, who I, I've known and worked with for many years uh, at Disney. And I want to welcome you, Andreas, to the Skull Rock podcast. Well, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, I, I appreciate talking to you and you even have a live audience. Wow. I know you hear that applause. It's fantastic. So, uh, Andreas, I think what I always like to start with with our guests uh, is really to get sort of a, a background on you. You know, how, how did you get involved in animation? Where did you go to art school? And how did you because you, you were born in Poland and raised in Germany. So how, how did you come to the United States and, and start working at Disney? How did that all come about? And I'm going to let you just kind of take over and tell us that story because this, you know, this podcast is, is uh, not only having great guests on to talk about animation, but it, it's also a bit of a oral history. And uh, mm-hmm. I think our, our listening audience loves hearing how people got into the business. Yeah. Um, just like you said, Dave, I was born in Poland. I don't remember anything about that part of my life because my parents uh, with me and my older sister escaped to uh, Germany, to West Germany, uh, when I was one year old. So, of course, I don't recall that. 
but then growing up in uh, Germany and going to school there and um, seeing my first Disney movie there at the age of 11, which happened to be the Jungle Book. Um, and that that event changed my life, literally from one day to the next. I mean, I, I look at my life at pre-Jungle Book and after and post-Jungle Book, because uh, it really changed my life. I, 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 I mean, at the age of 11, I thought I was going to be maybe a teacher or maybe a veterinarian because I love animals. So there are certain things you think about at that age. But when I saw that film, I thought, no, 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 no. This is what I was going to do. Something like that. And um, uh, I just uh, went on this quest to find out uh, 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 how this is being done. I, mean, I knew a little bit about that an animator would do a lot of drawings and that an animated film takes hundreds of thousands of drawings. But I didn't really know a lot more. So what I did, I, th I think it took me about six or eight months that I went to my English teacher uh, at my school and um, uh, with his help, I uh, wrote a letter with questions in it, basically saying, uh, hey, Walt Disney Studios, what can I do here in Germany now as a kid to prepare myself for my future employment with you uh, sometime <laughs> later? And uh, I like, do they have any tips, any art schools I should maybe consider or anything else I should do? and train myself. And so uh, I sent that letter off and it was, uh, I think it was not even more than two weeks, maybe max, three max, that I got a letter back from Walt Disney Productions with that famous Mickey logo on it. And I, I can't believe it because at that moment when you hold a letter from Walt Disney Productions, it, it, that whole thing becomes real. Before that, it's an abstract thing. You know, you see the movies and theaters and uh, uh, you see the, the the names and the credits, but it's still a very abstract thing. So here is this 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 contact. I'm actually holding a letter from the, in my hand, which I still have, uh, of course. And so that letter was a form letter. It wasn't a personal letter. It was a form letter, but still, it answered all those questions. So I just thought many kids write to Disney Studios often, obviously, and have with those questions. So. The, the most important thing that they pointed out in that letter is, look, they said, if you're serious about the kind of animation that we do here at Disney Studios, they said, please don't send us any drawings in, in your application later. Don't send us any drawings of Mickey Mouse and Pluto because we can teach you that later. You, know, you have to become an artist on your own right. We want to see how you draw and how you see the world. So start off by drawing your brothers and sisters, your parents, your pets, uh, go to the zoo, sketch the animals and do that often, not just once or twice, but often. And, and they said, when you're older, you need to go to an art school and learn uh, how to draw the human figure. Life drawing is very essential uh, as part of the, the training to become an animator. So I didn't understand all those things at first plus because you know, as a kid, you think like, well, if I can draw a cartoon character, then of course I can also animate it and that would be good enough. I, I didn't understand uh, all this uh, uh, kind of study that needs to be involved. And, um, but uh, a few months after I'd gotten that letter, the movie Bambi was re-released in Disney theaters in Germany. And of course I'd never seen it. So I watched, I went and saw Bambi. And I remember very vividly and some scenes where Bambi is trying to get up at the beginning of the movie. He had fallen down and 
He was trying to get up and then he was kind of wobbly as he's walking. And, and, and those words in that letter from Disney came back into my head about anatomy and learning how to draw animals. And I said, of course, I thought whoever drew this and animated this had to know all this stuff, like where the rib cage is in relation to the neck and the head and how the legs function and how all that stuff works. You have to know that before you animate it. It just became clear all of a sudden. And then I uh, was more or less unstoppable, you know, in pursuing this. And I went to the local zoos and uh, uh, filled up sketchbooks and uh, uh, enrolled in various drawing classes. Eventually, I started life drawing. I think I was 14. And my parents had have no idea what life drawing is or was. And uh, I remember coming back with these uh, big life drawings from my first evening, from my first evening class, and these were all of nudes, nude people, of course, models. And my dad said, "So, so, how did you guys do this? Did you have like photographs of people, and you drew this?" And I said, "No, no, we actually had models there. You know, they took who took their clothes off." So, my parents were sort of in a little bit of a shock. And I said, "Well, why don't you call my art teacher at school? You know, he's going to tell you more about this." So my father did, and my art teacher said, no, Andreas is gifted. I think he's at the right age where he can start doing this, so don't you worry. It's fine. <laughs> so, uh, so that was the beginning of my life drawing, which I kept up for, for years and years. And, of course, when I, uh, after my time at the Army in Germany, which was about 15 months, that, that started at the age of 18. And that was mandatory, right? Yeah, at that time it was it was mandatory. It had, it had just been reduced from eighteen months to fifteen months, so it was a little bit better. Yeah, but still, you know, a big chunk of time away from home, where your education basically stops your your personal right. education. Sure. And but even there, I was stationed in, in Hamburg. I did life drawing classes in the evening in the evenings in Hamburg at, at an art school. You know, I I, yeah. I kept it up. And uh, the funny thing is that. Uh, because uh, my superiors found out I could draw, illustrate, and also do some some writing, some uh, uh, calligraphy, Let, lettering, yeah, yeah. lettering, all that, yeah. and uh, and so they had me do uh, all these certificates for anniversaries or birthdays, and even caricatures. So so there were many times where my, my fellow soldiers were out on a, on a march wearing their gas masks and all that stuff, and. Uh, I was I was I I stayed back you know in my room and did all these certificates and uh, so yeah they didn't think that was so cool. <laughs> no. Hey, let, let me ask you this question. Uh, two two questions actually. What, what was your first animation book that you had access to? Were you able to find anything at, at the local library or order a book or anything on animation? And and the part two question is: Were were you aware of animation studios in Germany? Um, so my first book was actually, uh, The Art of Animation by Bob Thomas. And this is the 1959, I think it was 1959 version, which was basically to promote uh, the release of Sleeping Beauty. And, and that was, I think that was the first, the, the first edition, essentially. Yeah. First edition. Yeah. And I, I didn't have it personally, but I could check it out from the library. But uh, then sadly you have to return that book. And I just wanted to, to own it. So I was so frustrated that my dad said, well, let me take it to work in, in the, the office over there. They have a copier. I'm just going to Xerox the whole book for you. So at least you have a, a, a copy of that. So that's what happened. And that was a treasure for me because that was the only information 
I really had about animation and how it basically works. Because uh, as you know, in those days, uh, there were no making of uh, books or the art of books of animated features. There was hardly anything. There was a newspaper article once in a while, and that was it. So, so yeah, that was my first book. And then your second question was um, regarding whether you were aware of any animation studios or had a chance to yeah. visit any animation studios in Germany. I hadn't visited any because there really weren't many. Uh, there was one in the city of Mainz that produced little interstitials for uh, between. Um, advertising spots yes. there was a little pause and then you would see these hand-drawn animated um uh little spots little comedy gags they're, they're almost like a german version of the seven dwarfs they're called they're called the Mainzelmännchen, so a little little man from the town of Mainz, and they were a little cartoonier than the disney version but they had just very these, this very simple comedy routines that they would go through and i liked those because they were animated and they were drawn yeah. And so I thought, well, maybe I can sometime work there, but I didn't reach out and visit it or anything like that. And then and then uh, there was still a company called Fischer Kursen, uh, and they were around actually a leftover company from what started out uh, doing Nazi Germany because Hitler, uh, uh, not wanting to sidetrack here, but Hitler was fascinated by the art of animation and uh, had seen a copy of Snow White. Yes. And he, he actually basically ordered we want to do something like that here in Germany and even better, maybe. So um, he uh, 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 had this studio formed in, um, it was down by, by the Rhine near the city of Bonn, and it was called Fischerkösen. And, and, and they, were it, doing, they were doing some propaganda films. Exactly. A that's anima how, that's animated how, propaganda films during World War II. That's right. That's, that's how it started. And some of them really technically are not that bad. They're not, nowhere near what... Do, Disney was doing, but they were not bad uh, in terms of uh, uh, technique. And so then after the war, uh, they had to reconfigure themselves and then it basically did commercials and TV ads and, and stuff like that. Yeah, but they, yeah. they were also still around uh, when I was growing up. So I, I'd heard about them, uh, but I didn't go, I, I actually saw my first animation studio or visited one. Uh, this was after the army so I was about 20, and uh, I had written a letter to various animation studios in London. I knew that there were a few, that there was Richard Williams Animation and Hallis and Bachelor and uh, Purdom, Richard Purdom Productions. And so I wrote a letter to all of them. I even forgot how I got the address for those places because this is way before the internet. Yeah. But I did write letters, and I said, I'm coming to London, and I would like to... Uh, visit and just say hello and maybe show some of my work so i did that and uh, so all those studios met hallis and bachelor actually way back and uh um dick williams i did not meet at that time he was in the, in the states for business at that time but they gave me this wonderful tour so i i got an idea what ink and paint looks like you know what an animation desk looks like and uh, what dailies are they showed me dailies it was really fascinating and uh uh, I thought at that time, well, this is my plan B, you know, especially since these people, I had brought some student work, some drawings, but also some animation tests I had done. I had them on 60 millimeter. And so I showed those and this, and some of them said, especially at, at Dick Williams' studio, they said, well, if your plan A with Disney doesn't work out, come on here. 
you know, we're gonna we're gonna find a spot for you. Awesome. So that, that was encouraging, but luckily my thing with this thing did work out because uh, what I had also done uh, again. This is the time after the army when I was around twenty. Uh, I had gotten a hold of a book uh, by John Canemaker on the art of Raggedy Ann and Andy. Yes, the art of that movie, and uh, I, I still love that book. Uh, and because uh, it has model sheets and a lot of art from the film and caricatures and all that. But there was also one chapter toward the end that talks about the present stage of Disney Studios, where they were at. It was a great photo with Eric Larson and Frank and Ollie in front of the animation building. And uh, in that chapter, John was actually pointing out that uh, the studio at that time had an animation training program that was headed up by Eric Larson you know, one of the great yeah. animators, one of the nine old men, and uh, uh, that they were looking for really outstanding artists only uh, and uh, like a limited amount of people that they were looking for, for and, and, and training. The, the and best so, of the best. They yeah, were because they, the they, the they are the best. They, are, yeah. they, they, were, they were the best studio in the yeah. world with the biggest history, so they could ask for the best. So it was a little intimidating when I read that at first, but I said, let me write to Eric Larson. So I wrote to him about the, with some questions about the training program. And I said, basically, I said, I'm, 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 I'm very serious about getting into animation as a career. Uh, is there any material he could send me that any brochures or anything that, that might have floating around in this training program? So Eric wrote back. And uh, that was another moment, you know, you hold this letter from Eric Larson in your hands. And, uh, he said, no, he said, we don't really have any material, any printed material. We work with every student or every person here on the spot and uh, do our training that way. But uh, he said, if I have any more questions, he's willing to, to answer those. So I had a nice short exchange of letters with him with a few other questions that I had. And then in the end, I thought, well, um, let me send Eric some copies of my work. So I made some Xeroxes of my life drawings and animal drawings and whatever I had, you know, typical student work. Sure. Uh, knowing that this kind, this is the kind of stuff that they were looking for in the portfolio, and send it off to Eric. And uh, I thought, hopefully, he'll give me some pointers and advice of how I can polish my my craft, you know, to officially apply. And Eric writes back, and he said uh, he was talking with this and that. And at the end of the letter, he says, "Thank you for sending the copies of your work." and uh, uh, I see a lot of vitality and enthusiasm in your in the samples you've sent. I think you've got what it takes to make it work for you. And I just almost fainted. <laughs> that was the last thing I expected. And uh, and then uh, he pointed pointed out. He said, "Well, if you have some schooling left, finish your school." I had about a, a half a year, like about six months left before graduating so where, where, yeah where did you go to school because so, so you did your your military service and then you went into a four-year program exactly oh. and that school was in the this was in the town of essen which is just north of cologne and just south of dusseldorf sort of in the northwestern part kind of my home turf where i grew yeah. up uh, and so it was actually a very cool school it was an old monastery in a, in a village by a lake and it, it sounds idyllic, which it really was. And wouldn't you know, it was very much structured like California Institute of the Arts, meaning they were teaching painting, graphics, singing, acting, dancing, all the arts under under so, this one roof. Yeah, so it was like an institute. 
Yeah, it was an uh, arts institute. That's fantastic. So uh, the only thing they didn't have is classes in in animation. As far as that goes, that was my my evening time or on weekends being self-taught. And uh, at that time, all I could do, but even that was helpful, I could uh, get my hands on some Super 8 clips from Disney films, whether it was 101 Dalmatians or Snow White or some some short films. And I would have a viewer, a reel-to-reel viewer, with a mon- little monitor in the middle, because that's where you could uh, look at frames individually and stop the film and just study them and then go to the next frame and see what changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those were my my uh, studies, uh, self-educated, I guess, in, uh, in a way. And um, But it but, was also but, at that time but, where but I you met... Were, I was going to say, but you were classically trained. You were being classically trained. Yeah. And then in the evenings, you were applying what you were learning to the animation process uh mostly disney uh is is what i what i studied because i wanted to get into the studio even though i mean let's let's be honest here that seemed like an impossibility why because everybody tells you that it is you know whether it's what it was my, my family or my friends they were all like yeah you're going to america to work for disney and draw cartoon characters and make a living come on you know so you listen to that, and it, it, it going like, like, well, they're probably right. It seems pretty crazy, but I thought I have to try anyway, and I, they can always say no. And then I had my plan B going to London um, in place. So, uh, I mean, that, that's all you do because you're so enthusiastic about even the possibility, the slight possibility of that to happen, that that drives you forward, writing letters to Eric Larson and finding out about uh, uh, you know, the, the animation process and, you know, teaching yourself some tricks, giving yourself assignments, animation pencil test assignments. So I did, I, then this enthusiasm drove me forward. You know, I, I kept at it. And then, uh, yeah, it led to the, the, the point where Eric Larson said, uh, come on over after you graduate. And so in August of 1980, I, I joined the program, the animation training program. Now, did you... Did you know you had a slot in the program before you left Germany or did you leave Germany and come to Los Angeles and then, you know, arrange to meet with them to see if you could get in? No, Eric said he would take me in, okay. but it wouldn't, it wouldn't guarantee employment. It would be uh, uh, just for the training program. And I think at that time um, they would give you, Eric would give me an assignment. It was a very loose assignment. Uh, they, they, he would ask to, develop a situation first in storyboards and then in character design and then you would animate it just a situation of a character he said you can create your own character or you can take a vintage disney character and we give you model sheets you can animate that character doesn't matter but create a little situation around this character where you see that the character just doesn't move but seem to be thinking that they show show the thought process and those are big, big words. You know, you don't know how quite to, how, how to get a hold of that. How do you show somebody thinking, you, you know, as yeah. a young student animator? But but the thing was, Eric would help you with that. And you would show him the storyboards and the, he would help you with that process. And he said, well, don't have the character do this. M- maybe you want to change that scene over there and do that. Uh, and so he helped you with that. And he, of course, he also helped you with the animation. Uh, my uh, character that I designed was loosely based on Madame Mim, 
was sort of a mixture of metamim and Medusa, actually, sort of a, a, a witch-type character. And uh, I thought it would be fun to show her uh, as she tries to take off with her broom. And the broom had a life of his own, and he had an attitude, and he keeps throwing her off and uh, and then takes off by, by, by himself. And she would just sit, just super simple. And Eric helped me with that. And I, I remember showing him a scene and I said, uh, uh, I, it, I, I have this scene here and she's sitting down on the broom and then the broom starts to kind of buck her off like a horse, throw her off. And, uh, and uh, he said, okay, if that's what you are trying to do here, let me see. And he would take the stack of drawing and he said, okay, you start here. You need this drawing, you need that drawing. You don't need this drawing. There's too much information in there. Keep this, take out the next two, and then he might do two or three of his own rough drawings and put those in there, basically giving the scene some structure and making it not so busy that nobody would re recognize what you were trying to do or what was going on and helping you to communicate. That was a big word with him, communication with an audience. So that was the essence of the training program. And, uh, and, and by, by the time you finish this assignments with those few scenes of that one character, there was a review board who would take a look and then decide if you could stay or yeah. not. And some people came and went and some people stayed, of course. And uh, luckily I was one of those who stayed and I was uh, offered full employment. Who, who else was uh, in the uh, training program with you uh, that was sort of starting around the same time and sort of mm -hmm. training uh, with Eric with you? There weren't very many. I remember there, there was a girl named Lisa and she... Uh, she came from the Midwest, and uh, she was extremely talented as a as a doll puppet maker. Uh -huh. So she would do these marionettes, but also dolls, and they were very lifelike. And uh, you could see that she would take great care in those things. So sort of a craftsperson. Yeah. But she uh, she was also uh, advised probably by her art teacher to try animation. And she would she was in the program uh, with me, and she might have been at that time the only one. Uh, with me, and uh, she, um, after finishing her her uh, test, uh, it, it was her her intent actually to move on and go back to her dolls, basically, because huh. that's what that's what her love was, and 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 I stayed on. That's that's fantastic. So so once you stayed on, you got through the training program. What did you stay on as? What did you become? Did you become an animator right away or were you an assistant or how did that work for you? It was kind of unusual in a way that uh, I remember having a meeting with Ed Hansen. You, you remember that name? Oh, sure, he, sure. Yeah, he was remember. the head of personnel yeah. and uh, he said, you know what? Um, um, we like the way you draw. We like your portfolio. And uh, I actually had some character designs uh, uh, for the Black Cauldron in my official portfolio because I knew that they were doing a movie called The Black Cauldron based on a series of books. I had purchased those books when I was still in Germany, read them, loved them, and I sort of closed my eyes and, and tried to imagine what those characters might look like. The Princess, Alonwi, the Pig Keeper, Taran, the Horn King, and all those characters. So I did a whole set of, of drawings the way I saw them, and uh, Ed Hansen said, actually, can we purchase those from you? Because we don't have anything, any work like this. <laughs> so I remember it was something like something like two and a half thousand dollars. And at that time, that was a ton of money, of course. And uh, yeah. 
it helped me setting up my my apartment in North Hollywood, buy some furniture or what, whatnot. So uh, that had happened. And then uh, uh, getting back to my first uh, assignment, Ed Hansen was saying, you know, so we, we like those drawings. Could you do some more for us? Because we need to set the characters for the film. We are, we're starting storyboarding. And so I said, sure. So you were, a you were a character designer initially. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I was doing that for a while. And uh, the other thing Ed Hansen was saying, he said, uh, you know, we had this idea because we really like you to get started on this because you, you, you draw very Disney and very solid. And we have another young artist who had just graduated from uh, CalArts, you know, California Institute of the Arts. <laughs> and uh, he has a very different style of drawing. He, his stuff is very, uh, not abstract, but very pushed and, and very, very fresh and new. And maybe we, we can put the two of you in one room and you can come up with a different style for Disney, for this new movie. And that was Tim Burton. Of course. And uh, so I spent my first year in one office with Tim. Uh, and uh, I had a blast, Tim less so, because as we were trying to develop these characters visually, did some designs on costumes and situations, uh, the directors were leaning more toward the conventional way of drawing. And I tried to incorporate some of Tim's graphic uh, sort of uh, ideas. Uh, I love them, but as soon as you mix them with, with the conventional Disney style, you take the Tim Burton out of it, yeah, you know, and and uh, yeah. it was it, it was just hard to mix those two styles, so which was frustrating to from, to Tim, but uh, the director said in the end, well, let's do, let's just do uh, the conventional style that people know from us, and uh, uh, as a matter of fact, there was another animator, uh, uh, master animator called Milt Call. Some of the uh, listeners might have heard of him. And he had done some designs for the Black Cauldron after he had retired from Disney. He had moved to San Francisco uh, in 1976 after finishing his work on Meta Medusa on the Rescuers. And But the studio asked him, could you still do some designs for us on this new film? And he did. And uh, of course, they, his designs represented the, the, the Disney house style. Sure. Uh, gorgeous drawings. Uh, and so... That's what we try to stay with in the end. So after one year of working with Tim, Tim moved on and did some stop motion animation from for for Disney. He, he went on to he did Vincent and mm -hmm. and then he went on to do uh, the Frankenweenie live action short, right? Uh, and, and, and he did he, also something for the Disney Channel, but that never it, was finished. Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, like a kung yeah. fu take on Hansel and Gretel. Right. Right. Uh, and then he moved on and uh, moved into live action uh, outside of Disney. Uh, but I stayed on and started to animate and uh, yeah, uh, was on production uh, the whole time through, through the Black Cauldron. And, uh, so, and, yeah, and cool. so after doing character designs, you actually started doing some of the animation, right? I did, yeah. And, and, and so it, was an, it was an interesting experience. I was, I was very happy with the fact that the studio liked, liked the way I drew and... Uh, and give me a nice pat on the shoulder, shoulders about that. And I had focused, you know, all my all my years on perfecting my skills in in in, in drawing because yeah. that's what they had asked for in in that letter sure. years back. But when it came to animation, I found out that's another thing altogether. Uh, I had uh, started to animate. 
uh, and I did a scene with Dalbin, who was sort of a mentor character to this boy called Taryn. And uh, I did the drawings and I felt kind of good about it. It was sort of a medium close up. He was saying something. And in those days we had to film our drawings uh, on, uh, on a video, under a video camera. And then you could just uh, uh, see how that would look. Uh, and so I, I was happy with the drawing. That was the way, the way they looked and I filmed it. And it was really, when it started to move, when I saw this test, on the monitor, it was really stiff and uh, it wasn't really working. And uh, it dawned on me, you have a lot to learn here, Buster, you know, in terms of <laughs> animation. It's not just nice drawing. There's a whole other thing that, that goes with it, mainly acting and sincere acting. Sure. So again, uh, Eric was still around. Eric was still around. He helped me to loosen up a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, it, admittedly, my first scenes were stiff, but then it also, also the fact that the, the Black Cauldron took so long to complete it was sort of this epic story and it was widescreen, many characters. But I kind of f felt like I learned how to walk on that movie. You know, I yeah. got my, my main mistakes out of the way. And by the end, I felt like, yeah, I, there's certain things I can do now. It was like boot camp. It was. It, it was total boot camp. It was animation boot camp for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty amazing. Um and, and uh, you know, Black Cauldron was my first picture. It was your first picture. I have very fond memories. I learned an awful lot on that picture. And, and so I'm very proud of the work I did. I'm sure you are proud of the work you did. I, I, I to this day, tell people they should try and see this movie because, you know, it didn't perform very well, but it's not a terrible movie either, you know? Right. There, there, there's a there's a fan base for that for that film. There yeah. are people who are usually people who uh, the Black Cauldron was the first animated film they ever saw. They so they hold that movie in a special place, and uh, that, there's definitely a, a fan base for the film. Uh, but uh, uh, for me, after the movie, it was just time to move on. Uh, we had a management change, if you remember. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, it, was, it. It had been a family-run studio. Walt Disney's son-in-law, Ron Miller had been running the studio for quite a few years. And uh, uh, then we had a change uh, uh, with the involvement by, of uh, Roy Disney, Walt's, Walt's nephew. And then we had uh, Michael Eisner come in from Paramount, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And uh, it was a little scary. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you were too at that time because we didn't know what this all meant, yeah. you know, because these people that were coming in, again, talking about Eisner and Katzenberg, they came from live action and they had no idea how animation worked or we didn't even know if they liked animation. So they, they were actually going to shut down the animation studio. And, and if it wasn't for Roy E uh, Disney, uh, they may very well have shut it down, but Roy, Roy saved it and was sort of the godfather of the animation department for many. I think so too. I think they would have shut it down yeah. at that time because that's, that's what they knew. That's what they knew how to make. And, uh, they were going to just do that, turn Disney into a live action studio. But yeah, Roy knew it was, the, he called it always the heart and soul of the company and convinced them to stick with it. And uh, it was Dan Katzenberg who, who paid attention to it. And what he did was something interesting. He, he had, uh, he still has, twin children, a boy and a girl. But they were at, at, at a young age at that time, I want to say six or seven or something like that. And he took all the Disney films, uh, home after hours on 16 millimeter, 
starting with Snow White and Pinocchio and Bambi. And he, he showed them maybe two a week or something like that. He had these little family screenings. He yeah. showed them to his kids. And uh, he saw what his kids felt and how they reacted to those films. And uh, it got him excited. It, it really was sort of a change for him to to uh, discover animation that way with his kids. Yeah. And then he really got into it. And uh, I, I have to say, I'm still amazed uh, at uh, how he handled the department, how, how he handled the, the story process and what his input was i i was i'm i'm still amazed that he 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 grew so much so fast yeah yeah you know? yeah and, and and you know they they would they they sort of you know because of the management change out you know i think black cauldron uh uh was a victim of that uh you know it, it, they they kind of came in and looked at the black cauldron as well that isn't we we had nothing to do with that so just shoved that aside and now we're starting with a fresh slate and they put the great mouse detective which as you and i know uh originally started out as basil of baker street uh uh into production and then midway through change it to the great mouse detective um and uh and so you did character animation you did the the queen uh mouse toria uh, uh on that film uh was it a further boot camp for you was it more growing uh into uh, a full-on character animator yeah it was um it was a little easier to animate those cartoony characters because mm -hmm. These were anthropomorphic mice, and they, they're just easier to animate than a person, a real person, like a princess or, or, a, or a young boy. And so I found it easier and fun and uh, didn't do a whole lot. Uh, Phil Nibbling, an animator who you remember, also did uh, some uh, scenes with a, with a mouse queen. So I just picked up where he had left off and uh, did some scenes and, um, yeah, helped helped them basically to finish the movie, did a few scenes with other characters like Dawson. And um, and then uh, something interesting happened, uh, uh, which is like almost its own chapter, Roger Rabbit started to happen. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I was going to ask you about that because you're, you've moved from Germany to Los Angeles. You go through the training program. They say, yeah, we want to keep you. You start developing as a, a character animator and you're sort of putting yourself through this animation boot camp, if you will, on Black Cauldron and really Great Mouse Detective. But like, how did that come about where you were sort of plucked out and said, hey, you want to work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit in London? Because that was <laughs> sort of your plan B. And uh, and, yeah. and and Richard Williams was directing the animation on the film. So like, how did that how did that happen? Because you and I, Phil Nibbling, Don Hahn and Steve Hickner and I think Ron Rocher, we were the only Americans over there. There was mm -hmm. only like five, I think five or six of us that came, that were from the U.S. that were in London working on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So yeah, it was it was basically a, a European crew. There was some from Canada, yeah. but you had animators from the from from uh, Belgium or France or or uh, yeah, I mean from all over the place. And we came in as the Americans, so to speak, just just like you said. So. It was just, yeah, how, how, how did I get attached to that uh, project it was sort of unusual, but interesting um, because I had prior to 
me going over there, I, I want to say a year, a year and a half ago, I'd met Richard Williams uh, sort of socially uh, at uh, events at the Academy mm -hmm. or screenings, you know, and uh, uh, I just found out that I got on with him really well because it seemed like we liked the same things. Uh, we had the same enthusiasm for animation and its possibility. We liked the same animators from the past admired their work. So we, we had things in common. So there was a good vibe uh, going on. And, um, and but he always kept saying, no, I, 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 I don't do Disney. I, 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 I admire what they do and what they've done, but I always do my own thing. And then one time he gave me a phone call and he said, you know what? He said, I think I might work for Disney after all. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, they're doing this big film and Spielberg is involved and Robert Zemeckis and they're doing it with Amblin also as a co-production and it's based on a book and it's uh, going to be called Who Framed Roger Rabbit about this animated rabbit who lives in a live action world and uh, and uh, he showed me actually the first model sheet in the trunk of his car when we had met for <laughs> dinner uh, the first model sheet of Roger Rabbit and uh, it looked like fun it looked like a great character uh, you know and um, and he was sort of showing me this, trying to entice me maybe to join the the crew if, eventually. And all I told him was like, look, uh, I just moved over here. It really hasn't been that long. I'm just sort of settled now, and uh, uh, I don't want to leave the U.S. And uh, so we, we sort of left it at that. But he kept he kept updating me about this Roger Rabbit project, how it was going, and then um, uh, Don Hahn got involved. He was going to produce the animation part of the film. And then uh, Don asked me, he said, you know, Dick Williams and I would like to take you out to dinner to a Mexican restaurant in Burbank. And just Don, Don, Don Cucos. Don Cucos, exactly. <laughs> Down in Burbank. And he said, let's just all meet and uh, shoot the breeze. So we did that. And uh, of course, they talked about how great this film could be and, and should be. And uh, how committed everybody is who's already on it. And uh, we had chips and salsa and uh, a couple of margaritas. And what can I say? I signed on, you know, I uh, it never fails. Uh, uh, but they, they were also very uh, enthused about the project and that's infectious, you know, that got me going. And I said, well, what the heck, if I, I really shouldn't miss this one if I have a, a, a chance to be a, a part of this. So I signed on and then Move to London, and, and 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 you have no regrets because it really oh. was a great experience, wasn't it? One of the best. Yeah, uh, I think I think my whole career would have been different had it not been for Roger Rabbit, and and also my animation benefited from it because, as you know, Dave, the animation on Roger Rabbit is very loose. It's very cartoony yes. and uh, very early Hollywood, uh, and uh, once you go through. A whole movie doing that kind of animation that is so loose and uh, and and fresh, then 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 you, your your work your your future work will benefit from that. Sure. Because you know you know what stiff animation is and you know what loose animation is and you know what what looks alive and what doesn't. So it it really affected my future work too. Yeah, yeah, and and you had a chance to work on a a, a fairly broad variety of characters. 
right? Because I, I mean, you you not only did Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman, but you did some of the Disney classics, Mickey and Minnie, and, and the Warner Brothers classics, Bugs and Daffy and Donald uh, Donald Duck, obviously from Disney. But I I mean, it's a fairly wide variety of of cartoony characters that are sort of calm to very broad. Yeah, it was. And that's what, that's what really made it fun because you jumped around from one character assignment to the other. Uh, I remember my first scene was uh, uh, with um, with the ostrich from Fantasia. <clears throat> and uh, this actually happened. I had just landed in Heathrow. A car picked me up from the airport. I thought I would go to my apartment and rest. And no, 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 no. That's not how it worked. They take you from the airport right to the studio, which was in Camden in the north of London. <clears throat> And um, Richard Williams is there and gives me these photostats, which are really enlarged frames of the film. Of the live um, action. Of the live action part. <clears throat> and you say, here it is. And here's the ostrich. He gave me the assignment. And I had to walk right then and there, fresh off the plane. It was crazy. That, that is nuts. And, and, you know, Dick, Dick Williams was, was such a great individual because he was just the embodiment of enthusiasm he was so enthusiastic about the animation and 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 always saying life is on ones and you know he always liked to have his animation on ones and all of that and when i say ones i i i'm saying for our listeners uh drawing uh, doing a drawing for every frame of the film not doing a drawing for two frames but literally a fresh drawing for each frame of the film uh and he was a proponent of of doing stuff on ones yeah he had his whole theory about this and he was absolutely right especially for this movie because when you want to marry animation with live action uh, the live action gives you a new pose basically for every frame so you, you have to create that for the animation as well so you cannot do 12 frames per second, which you often do in regular animation. You have to do those 24. Uh, but Dick was the right guy for this project because his, because of his enthusiasm, like you mentioned, but also his insistence on perfection. Yes. This was a very technically involved movie where the com combination with a live action character and a cartoon character, especially when they touch, and they, they, there was a lot of contact with those two worlds, it had to be absolutely believable and convincing. And that was not easy to do because of one fact, that the live action cameramen were told just to shoot their movie, don't even think about the difficulty of adding animation, we will take care of that later. And that resulted in a lot of handheld camera where you just film something and it drifts ever so slightly up and down and left and right. So you, you, you look at again at these photostat, these uh, uh, printed frames from the film, and, and you're thinking, how am I going to draw Roger Rabbit standing there if the camera shifts all over the place? Yeah. And everybody, every animator had their own way of solving that. I don't know how Phil did it or Dave Spafford or Simon or the others. I, I just found, found my, own, my own way of doing that. I'm not going to get into this all because it's kind of a lengthy process to explain, but sure. uh, I had basically had my assistant trace the areas where the character was standing on, on paper, could be a lamppost, could be a trash can, a wall. And then based on those tracing, I would place my character. 
Sure. So that, that that's how I did it and locked it in. And then the character will also move along with those shifting camera moves. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it had to be perfect. And Dick was saying, if if the if you make a mistake, even for two frames or one frame, the illusion is ruined. So it had to be perfect all the time. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, 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 you know, more than 25 years on, that movie holds up very well. Um, I, I saw a 25th anniversary screening of it. You might have been there. It was at one of the uh, theaters in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, and, uh, I, I just, uh, I, I, every time I see uh, even a, a clip from the movie, it still holds up really well. Yeah, because, uh, uh, it hasn't been really attempted since in that kind of a quality There there've been attempts in commercials and maybe another feature or two by other st studios, but not like that, that, that movie was unique and, uh, you still being asked as an audience member to believe that those two worlds could exist in in one drawings and and live act, live actors and we we just made that work yeah and people are still fascinated by it now just like they were when the movie came out so i think this is a good point for us to break and uh um have have you back next week for part two of our conversation uh if you're good with that absolutely all right so i want to thank andreas deja for being with us here on the skull rock podcast this was part one of a multi-part i'm going to say multi-part i'm not going to say two i'm going to say multi-part because <laughs> it could be more than two parts because we have so much to talk about so we will see you uh again next week right here on the skull rock podcast Skull Rock Podcast, your weekly dose of pixie dust. Skull Rock Podcast. To infinity and beyond. Exploring the outer reaches of the Disney galaxy. Whoa! Oh, wow, you flew magnificently. I can't believe there are three more interviews after this. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, so the, the, this is so fantastic because he, he he's such a, a, a nice guy and such a generous individual. Uh, you know, as we were talking, we don't want to rush through these <laughs> stories. You know, he, he, he he's had a lot of experiences. And, and by the way, I think I mentioned in one of our uh, interviews that um, even though he and I have worked on the same movies, we had different experiences. And he had, you know, he's telling some stories that. I'm hearing for the first time, I love uh, you know, things that were going on with him. Uh, so even though we were on the same picture, so it's, uh, I think it's a lot of fun. I'm learning some things and he's such a great guy and a terrific storyteller. Certainly. I, I like the fact that I can be a fly in the wall and listen in on these great stories and hear a different point of view. And I think that really gives us the fans just a nice wider appreciation for everything that went on behind the scenes, because you typically don't get that. Maybe you interview an animator, maybe you interview a director or producer on their take and what happened, but to get someone that is entrenched with these these characters, these beloved characters like Andreas is just really really cool, and he's so laid back. So yeah, yeah, he's, he's terrific. He's just a just a really good guy.
I love so it. So I'm looking I'm looking forward to the next three weeks. I can't believe uh, it. I think I just think it's fantastic. You know, it's something you've uh you all have come to appreciate on this show is just the the level of, of guests and the quality of stories that you get. You can only get here on Skull Rock Podcast. Now if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget, tell your friends, subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts now. Right now we're on Apple and and Spotify, iHeartRadio, Sorcerer Radio Network. We're on just so many different platforms. Um, so please go out there and subscribe. Don't forget to also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And check out our show archive as well, SkullRockPodcast.com and in our show notes. Don't forget, we love getting listener emails and feedback. So uh, let us know what you thought about this show or other shows. Email us, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. And don't forget to check out our listener um, support as well as our sponsor support as well. Old Mill Press, Shore Microphones, all of that in our show notes. Dave? Yeah, and you know something, Al John? We're, we're going to be sliding into the holidays fairly quickly here. So I just want to remind our listeners, if you'd like to get a signed copy of one of my books, go to theoldmillpress.com and you'll be, be able to get that. Uh, and if you already have a copy, maybe you want to give a copy to somebody you know, uh, and it'll be a cherished volume for years to come. Man, they are the best. I'm, I'm shilling here. Okay. No, yeah, but and, they're the best. <laughs> and also, I just want to remind our listeners, if you'd like to, go to davidbosser.com. I've got a whole bunch of articles up on Disney history uh, that you can read. It's all for free. Uh, check it out at davidbosser.com. With that, go out and have a fantastic week, and we will see you back here next Monday right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook. The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.